podcast one production. Politics is not what it used to be. The way things work today seems chaotic, confusing. All too frequently, it heats up to explosive levels. Is that because we're better informed than ever before? Has social media given us all an awareness of what politicians are really up to? Or is social media simply a new tool of control, keeping the public stirred up in order to keep them under the thumb of the powerful? This is an issue that affects everyone, no matter where you live, no matter how you're governed, we're all touched by politics. Politics is civilization. So we need to take a look at how technology has already transformed the practice of politics and where we might be going. We're on the campaign trail on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. For as long as we've been civilized, and civilized literally means living in cities, we've needed some way to mediate between conflicting human needs, and we need some way that doesn't involve materially killing each other. So last 12,000 years, all the way back to Jericho, and that's the first city that we know of, they've seen us urbanize over those years, and that urbanization has gone hand in hand with the politicization of our lives. To turn a famous phrase on its head, politics is internecine warfare by other means. Now, the practice of politics has evolved continuously over those millennia. We had the polis of the Greeks and the civitas of the Romans and a hundred other forms, all the way from this sort of radical anarchism of the Polish-Lithuanian confederation to the absolute autarky of the Chinese emperors and every version in between. And We want to think that maybe we're getting better at it. Now, the dictum from Churchill is that democracy is the worst form of government except for all of the others. And that seems to be holding true, probably. But there are times when people seem to give up on democracy. And then there are other times when democracy roars back into full vitality. And Mika Sifri understands this ebb and flow. As the co-founder of the Personal Democracy Forum, he's gathered the best and brightest to discuss the transformations in our political culture and our political technologies. In Civic Hall, he's created a flourishing co-working space dedicated to improving public life for the democratic exercise of power. And so there's no one better to ask to talk about the future of politics. Welcome, Mika. Oh, it's great to be here, Mark. I hope I can live up to that introduction. (laughs) I'm sure you will. So... Over the years that you've been doing the Democracy Forum, which has been, what, about 2005 to present? Uh, We started in 2004, so heading into 15 years, yeah. Politics has changed in the way it's practiced and worked over the last 15 years. Do we want to just sort of start with that arc a little bit from your own point of view? Sure, sure. And I should say that the reason why I got... Uh, excited about uh, and started doing uh, Personal Democracy Forum back then is, uh, you know, that I had been uh, in my previous life a journalist at The Nation magazine and then a political reformer working in the United States on trying to solve the problem of private money dominating politics. 
And I really felt stymied uh, that, you know, uh, we didn't see any real way that we were going to get the people who had benefited from the rigged game that got them into office to change the rules of the game. And that that game uh, was continually uh, a clash between organized money and disorganized people. And, you know, uh, organized money was winning. and, you know, the, that long arc that you're uh, referring to of how democracy, uh, you know, sometimes roars back. I mean, you can read the arc of American history as a forward progress towards uh, greater emancipation, greater inclusion uh, from something that was originally only for white men who owned property and uh, African-Americans defined as three-fifths of a person just as property. Uh, to something more inclusive. Um, And when the internet came along, what I got excited about, along with a whole bunch of other people who became the nucleus of the PDF community, was the idea that this open, very generative uh, uh, platform for communication and collaboration might actually help democratize democracy. And I I have to say that 15 years on into watching this, the, the big... The big fact of our times is mass participation. Right. Okay. The, Everyone the, has a voice now. It's that prior to the the open internet, um, there really were gatekeepers on what made its way into onto the public agenda, and you know some of them were literally the white men who were the broad you know who who were our anchors you know Walter Cronkite, Bob Rather, and uh, Dan Rather, and so on, and that's been exploded. Um, and there absolutely is a moment of uh, greater participation by previously excluded or suppressed voices, women, minorities of all types. Um, and so I think we were optimistic and probably too optimistic about where that would take us, okay? But that is the seminal fact, is that we... Uh, uh, because the cost of communication has dropped to near zero, uh, it's become ridiculously easy. As, as Clay Shirky said, you know, to, it, it, forming groups has become so easy, here comes everybody. That was the title of that book. Um, and I think that what we're experiencing now is a little bit closer to the war of all against all, which I remember when one of the years you came and spoke at, at PDF, that was one of uh, the core ideas that you were suggesting, we were going to go through a kind of a, a Habesian period. Um, and, you know, I think the mistakes that some of us made were not in understanding how power would reassert itself um, in that in the early, in those early years, the early years of the aughts, the rise of the blogosphere, the, you know, join the conversation, that, that whole mantra. Find the others. Yeah, find the others. And many, many powerful and, and, and positive effects for people, you know, if you were a gay kid growing up in, in a, a little rural town in the Midwest, the internet was a lifeline. Um, and, and we shouldn't dismiss that. But the, the assumption that the effects would continue to be positive and that new power would displace old power, that more democratic and open forms would somehow supplant the older, more concentrated forms. I think we started to see that change as early as 2008 with things like the Obama campaign for for, uh, president, where he 
yes, built a mass distributed uh, base of support, uh, but he controlled it. And that base did not understand that, it, in fact, it had to seize power. Uh, it, it saw putting Obama into power was the seizure of power and, and not that, uh, you know, and if he stopped listening and stopped activating you that, you know, somehow it would be as easy uh, as it was to get him elected to keep him honest. Not when he controls the, the 13 million person email list, right? Um, th that one to many model then became something that I think we've seen again and again, weaponized quite successfully. And then the second wave, which I think was totally underestimated by our community, was that uh, domestic societies were not impermeable to outside troublemakers, right? I mean, when... when um, do we need, to, we need to drop into Russian for this part of the no, conversation? No, well, but when our friend John Perry Barlow, who right. sadly is deceased, when he talked about the rise of cyberspace, right, and that this would be a free space beyond the control of governments, he was wrong in two ways. The first way he was wrong was that local laws would no longer apply. In fact, if you ask anybody who's running Facebook or Google or any of the other companies, they'll tell you that they're constantly maneuvering to operate within the local laws and mores of all the countries they go into. They have to. Uh, they don't particularly want their representatives arrested and thrown in jail. Um, and the, but that, so that was the first way that this vision of a open democratic, you know, global cyberspace ruled by no one uh, was false. And then the other one is obviously the, the capacity for all kinds of bad actors. You, I remember, t talked about, you know, the war between anonymous and Scientology, right? And so we, we had this notion that there could be this shadowy network uh, called anonymous. We didn't really know who was in it. A few years later, I asked um, Biela Coleman, who is an expert on anonymous, uh, I said, you know, you spend a lot of time hanging out with these people. Do you have any way of knowing whether they're for real or they're just Russian mafia? And she said, honestly, uh, you, you can't know. So the leap we didn't take, I, mean, I really regret this, is because, you know, I, I did see the weaponization of social media after Obama's uh, victory in 2012. A few of us were warning that the data-driven campaign was a really dangerous thing, that knowing how to micro-target individuals based on the issues you know they care about combined with AI and emotional, you know, tools of emotional manipulation that have been around for decades, that all of this could be used by bad guys. We just didn't picture who the bad guys might be and exactly who they might, uh, you know, align themselves with. Uh, and here we are. So, I mean, what you've done is you've basically been able to point in that list to exactly what was exposed earlier this year around Cambridge Analytica and Facebook being used for Brexit and in the Trump political right. campaign, and also, I think, also in the Kenyan political campaign as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we now can see all of these pieces. We could see the opening of the space, and we, you know, we've already done an episode really talking about utopianism, and particularly in the context of the internet, and how we've come, I think, more full circle around this. We're now starting to see this around our politics, and we're seeing how how politics has fought back. And it's very much my goal to have Zainab Terfeki on an episode further in, maybe in series four, to really talk about the Twitter and tear gas phenomena. We're talking about where power came back, roaring back 
to find all of these, to, to reassert itself. So now we're in a world where individuals have power, they have voice, and but so do these big organizations. And this is now... Well, it's not so much a post-internet landscape as maybe a peri-internet landscape, right? This is the world we're in now. What does that then mean for someone who is either a local politician or a local person who's trying to get work done politically for their community? How do they need to start acting? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And I, I, I have to say it's one of the places, local is one of the places where I think some of the balancing effects of, uh, let's say, pre-internet cultural and civic life can assert themselves, though I don't, I, I cannot think of many examples where we have really fleshed out models of, of how that will work and, stay, and, and be stable, right? So you can point to individual politicians uh, we used to talk about Cory Booker when he was mayor of Newark, you know, tweeting about going out in a snowstorm to, you know, uh, deliver diapers to a, a family that was in desperate need of, of uh, supplies and how wonderful that was that he was so in touch. Uh, or now we have... Uh, Alan and now we have t- <laughs> tweets coming off the toilet at 5 a.m. from the White House. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, or we have... But well, no, the, the good examples are the, the politicians who show that they're listening, they're engaging, um, they're responsive, it isn't just a show, um, but there's nothing institutionalized about that. Right. There's no, you know, who are the people they think they need to be responsive to, right? We need, right. in some ways, the, the problem here is that while we have formal structures for public consultation, they're, they're called elections or they're called public hearings, um, the old meat space government has basically allowed new digital private platforms to colonize our civic life. And so Facebook says to many politicians, just do your town hall on Facebook. And nobody, at least until recently, (laughs) thought to ask, number one, why are you forcing your constituents, many of whom may not want to go on Facebook because for whatever reasons, cultural, religious, privacy, um, w- aren't town halls supposed to be open to all? Um, and then the second being, you know, how much information does this politician, in effect, force their constituent to hand over to Facebook? Why are we doing that? I mean, we have yet to see the creation anywhere, as far as I know. And there are bits of it happening. In, in some cities you see it, particularly in places like Spain, other parts of Europe. But the full-blown digital public square mm. where core functions of being part of civic life are mediated through a platform that is owned by us, not by somebody backed by VC Capital and traded on Wall Street. Uh, so it has public values, not private private values baked into it. It doesn't exist. And most of us, because we have been wired so effectively by, you know, the the addictive design methods of Silicon Valley can't even remember what when it was different, right? When they weren't just hooked into their Instagram feed or, or whatever. And, and that's a really troubling problem. Um, people have to, in many ways, want something better if they can't imagine it because they've been enclosed. Uh, and then they get this sort of thin gruel simulation of, oh, it's a town hall, look, it's on Facebook. <laughs> Must be a town hall. It, it, they called it a town hall. That, I guess this is town hall now. 
right? I, you know, and, and you have to really push the analogy at people and say, well, if Walmart were hosting town hall meetings for their members of Congress in their districts and you had to have a Walmart credit card to, you know, and it was in the Walmart building where you shop and then that would that make sense to you as a town hall with your elected representative? Um, and so no, but I can totally imagine Amazon doing that within the next 10 years, too. Oh, God, yeah. You can, we, and, and, and for all we know, we are headed into Neil Stevenson's world. Oh, yeah. Right? Where, where, where civil society doesn't manage to reassert itself, and we end up living in different... Franchulates. Yeah, digital fiefdoms yeah. Of, of one form or another. And by the way, the service is great. You know, my packages get delivered within hours. I don't have to go out and shop. What else could I want? <laughs> Okay, Samika, so we've we've realized that in this glorious democratic world that we've fallen back into, in a sense, the same old problems. Power is being executed differently, right? It's being executed through these new channels that we have. And we've also come to the very clear sense that we need new tools to bring people together. And one of the things I always get quite concerned by is that there's a lot of emphasis on, oh, if we put voting on the blockchain or I know, and you're shaking your head here. And and it's funny because I always go off about this because I think there's a misapprehension. People think that voting is a technology and voting is actually a social agreement, right? If you don't actually believe in the voting, it doesn't matter what technology you use for it. So what, what do we need to think about? What are the pieces that are missing? And I guess they're both social and technological pieces. What are the pieces that we're missing that can help us reinforce both community, sociality, and democracy in the next billion seconds over the middle years of the 21st century? So uh, it's a really important question. And it, it, I think here at Civic Hall and going back to you know our days with Personal Democracy Forum, we've always kept an eye for the the people and the projects that represent uh, meaningful experiments in new forms of, of democratic participation that add up to something meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the it's, it's very, very challenging because it's, you know, as Henry Ford never really said, you know, if you ask people what they want, they'll just say faster horses. And we're trying to describe something that doesn't quite exist anywhere and say that's actually what you want, right? Um, you know, the last major innovation in, you know, the modern, you know, sort of industrial scale democracies that I can think of is debates. So we, we have this institution around the world that our, our major candidates for office at some point will appear on television and take questions in a live setting and everybody will kind of make a judgment on that. And that's been around now since, I don't know, 1960 and Nixon and Kennedy. Um, and so we spend some time looking at ways that people around the world are trying to make debates more engaging, more responsive to what the public actually would like to see asked and more uh, uh, ways of holding the candidates accountable. This is really chipping at the edge of the problem. Um, because, you know, in truth, we need uh, a whole different system than just you elect a few people to represent millions. I mean, the reason why there's so much corruption is we've made it really easy to uh, for money to know who they have to buy off. Just get the senators. I mean, there are only 100 of them. It can't be that expensive. Um, 
instead of some much larger and more uh, changeable group that, you know, becomes harder to corrupt all of them. Uh, you know, there's a reason why random juries are harder to corrupt than, say, you know, our system of, of regularized elections that are expensive to run. And I mean, look at the Athenians knew this, right? Because public right. offices were filled at random. And I, in there are times where I think we should look at that model yeah. again. Yeah. Um, but I think that we also have to look for ways that w- this new, amazing new set of tools that we have uh, can actually produce a, a richer uh, awareness on the part of polities, and, and maybe local is the only reasonable place where we can start this. Mm. It's less expensive and mm. it's more, you know, there's less at stake in some ways on those experiments. Uh, but we need ways for the crowd to listen to itself. And right now what we have is just a lot of voices shouting more than ever before and nowhere near more listening. We have not developed the ears that we need to go with this overdeveloped mouth that we have. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by experiments. I mean, there's a very interesting process underway in Taiwan. It may have reached its zenith because the, the party in power that, that came in as a reform party and said, we are going to do digital, digitally driven deliberation in a more expensive way is now facing setbacks. So the political cover for the, what's called the V Taiwan experiment uh, may begin to fade. But what's interesting about it to me is that they've got uh, close to 100 people paid by the government to be public engagement specialists. And if a topic comes up on the government portal, gets more than 5,000 signatures as a petition, and assuming it's not frivolous and it's not about national security or foreign affairs, which they've kept walled off, one of those specialists will go to the community, go to the place where the issue is arising, and then begin a public process of consultation that includes engaging people online, that includes a very structured, uh, uh, literally physical setting. These things are aired on television so that lots more people can see in a transparent way what's being deliberated. And maybe this is more the, the style of Taiwanese culture than, say, Western culture. They're also hunting for consensus. They're not hunting for the majority beating the, the, the minority in a vote, and then that settles it. Instead, can we find a supermajority? Can we find on difficult new issues where we might all have some consensus? And I think that's a really interesting uh, thing to be looking for. I'm, I'm getting more and more convinced that the technology that we use to decide things now, which is first-past-the-post voting, actually makes polarization worse. As an Australian who does not have first-past-the-post voting, I will tell you that it does, right? That, in fact, when you do uh, preferential voting, you tend to find you find your supermajority, right, in your preferences rather than in your first, first, uh, first choice. Right. So we have, to, we have to explore changing that. We also have to explore, uh, and this is where I think the tech world, uh, I wish people would spend more time on this. You know, there's a lot of investment that goes into better tools for winning elections, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's money behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you see a lot of people who do local community organizing, just grabbing hold of whatever consumer tools are easy to use. And by the way, easy to use is important. Yes. Uh, And then I see these very idealistic engineers 
who have an idea for something that will be this beautiful, wonderful site for community deliberation, and it's never easy to use. Yeah. And people have to remember that your average citizen is busy. They don't want to spend a lot of time on politics. They actually would prefer not to because it's in many ways something that they're repelled by. And, and we're it's, losing if, it's if like that's the result. Out, it's like taking out the trash. It's not that you don't ever want to do it, because you do, because otherwise the house gets filled up with trash, but it's, it's a chore. It's a chore that we've made worse. We've allowed it to be, again, colonized by grifters and now by the new platforms, and it is no longer th- like your holy uh, uh, right and privilege. You know, when, when you hear about people who say, you know, their parent or their grandparent died to, pr- you know, protect certain freedoms and we just take them for granted. And I think that is uh, another problem. Um, I go back to local. I think also the other place I go to is all the other forms of organization that are not uh, immediately connected to politics. In other words, we all belong to membership organizations. I mean, almost all of us, we probably belong to a church or we are in a town where we uh, are interested in what our town is up to, or we belong to a club. Ask yourself, when was the last time you had a vote in those things? How how does your voice get heard in those contexts? And some of them are so small and intimate, you know, you just solve it by discussion. You have a de facto process of consensus. But what we need are larger models, say within unions, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that the membership at large can talk to each other and listen to each other. Or those of us who belong to e-groups, e the move-ons or the avazes, um, those groups right now decide what issues to focus on through a, pro- a process of top-down A-B testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit of bottom-up suggestion, you, you can post a petition on one of those sites, and if it catches on, the, the people who run those organizations will throw you some more support. But that's not the same thing as deliberation. That's not the same thing as listening to people you don't agree with. And the problem with the tools that we have now is they are all either by design or by accident. They simply work best on amplifying agreement. So if I already, and this is why we've long said the Internet is really good right now at stop, but it's terrible at go. If you want to stop the execution of an accused, you know, somebody who's uh, been... Uh, you know, the state is trying to kill you. You can build that mass really fast. Everybody agrees this is an outrage. It must be stopped. Uh, the dictator running Egypt, we have to overthrow him. We all agree. Just go to the square. We'll stop him. But then how do all those different groups agree on a new platform? Do the students agree with the workers and agree with the human rights people and the, uh, and the artists? Actually, no, they don't agree. They need help figuring out how to get to agreement. And we have not improved that technology at all. We've actually made it worse, I think. But I guess underneath the technology, at the same time, there's also humans who are trained to be able to facilitate, to be able Mm -hmm. to find ways to be able to get to a common ground with people. And it seems as though those people are in short supply as well. Yep. Yeah, I I totally agree. They are, uh, and they... What they do is not very sexy. It, it in large degree, is analog, not digital. Yeah. Um, and There's no shame in analog. I think this is yeah. one of the things that we've come back to now, <laughs> is that I think for a well, while... 
I, it's not that there's no shame in analog, Mark. I think it's, it's a different way to think about it, which is that technology is just anything that's been invented after you were born. Right. Right? I mean, in analog times, we had technology, yes. right? We had telephones. Yes. I mean, we, you know, there's not... Mimeo machines. We, there are many other things. Newspapers, all the, sorts the of stuff. The speed of communication has changed. And I think that, that gets to something else, which is really hard, which is we live in this kind of mass atomized society where we are bombarded with distractions, we are overworked, and spectacle is what gets our attention, the lizard part of the brain. You can't help but slow down and look at an accident as you drive by, right? For instance, the American presidency, but that's another yeah. story. Well, it's very entertaining. I mean, let's <laughs> yes, let's it, give it that. It's that, if nothing else. Um, and so we, our attention span, our collective attention span, has been really damaged. Uh, you know, I, I, and I think this started before the internet became a mass phenomenon, but it's only been accentuated. And that the space we live in now is, is really hurting. I think at the the that process of reason deliberation and you know learning to have that kind of sense of I've got to get off my you know whatever the thing is making me twitch to check it every 5 minutes and instead read a book that you'll actually get to more wisdom listening to a 60 minute podcast where you have the time to actually think and absorb develop ideas process them um I'm not I, I am a perennial optimist. I, I think, you know, I, I often think about this and, and think about my, uh, my mother's generation. She lived through the war in Europe. She, her family, she as a child was hidden uh, along with the rest of her family in Belgium. Fortunately, they all survived. But they lived through hell. Um, and so we are in something. It isn't hell like they went through. Um, it's challenging. And it may well get worse. But we ought to recognize how much opportunity we have at the same time to develop these new forms that we need and these new practices and get better at the thing that we need really badly, which is self-government. Um, and it starts with yourself. <laughs> um, if you can't you govern, govern yourself, you right, can't govern others. Right. And it also starts with recognizing that... Uh, uh, you know, merely feeding your, your, the lizard part of your brain is not enough. It will not get you to the things that we collectively need. And so I, you know, what we do here at Civic Hall is I, I think we're fortunate in that there are um, a, a substantial fraction of, of two communities that are really interested in, in colliding and collaborating with each other. The first one is that there is a new generation of civic entrepreneurs. These are people who are like, the old ways aren't working, and I'm not going to wait and work my way through the bowels of some legacy organization for 20 or 30 years until I get to be the leader. Um, I'm going to just invent new forms. And you see many, many, many examples of this, and it's wonderful. And there's, if anything, we need more uh, risk capital aimed at that sector so that more more things can be tried. We need more experiments. We, we need a better nervous system for spotting what's working and how to spread it. And by the way, that's one of the reasons we've been building something called the Civic Tech Field Guide, which is a compendium of nearly 2,000 examples of tools and processes that have been in use all over the world. Just go to civictech.guide. And we'll link to that on the website. Excellent. But the other, the other thing that, give, that makes me optimistic, the other force is the civic-minded techies, okay? These are people 
And again, they are obviously many of them being seduced by the opportunities to make a lot of money making somebody even richer as you know the quants inside the the stock trading firms or or the data scientists working for Zuckerberg but i think a lot of these people are hungry for meaning and um at various points in different stages in their life whether it's at the beginning or later after they've had a run inside some of these beasts they're looking to do work that matters they're looking to actually contribute something positive to society um and i think it may be that the 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 good news about the cambridge analytica moment whatever you want to call the the last year of finally waking up to the dark side of of mainstream tech is that that the field feels like it's starting to go into a maturing moment um and i i think it was jonathan zunger maybe who wrote a piece about how other other fields have had this moment you know when the the uh the chemists who um you know nobel right, right. you know inventing dynamite, the yeah. technology that made dynamite and then decides to fund the nobel prizes or uh the atomic scientists who help you know make the bomb a reality and then they're like holy cow we've got to build an international movement to prevent this thing from being used again and they found things like pugwash and the bulletin of atomic scientists and we what we have to fight against is the view among many techies that well somebody's going to build this it might as well be me right which is and you see this you see a lot of people who are like and they which will call the edward teller syndrome uh, yes or the ben van brown you yeah, know like yeah. uh, where the bombs uh, go up i don't really care you it's know it's not my department says ben van brown right um and that's a serious problem and i think there needs we need stronger ways to sanction against that choice that no the choice is you really have a lot of power you you know tech innovator who's sitting there deciding whether you know you should make facial recognition technology for amazon and so we can sell it to police departments in china right um and i i worry about that i worry that the the other side's wizards are are going to work faster than ours but we all can just do our little bit here you know and so our little bit is try to gather the people who are the the next generation civic entrepreneurs inventing the new forms that will help us listen to each other better and and become a a, a true 21st century democracy and the 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 civic minded techies um who need help actually focusing their skills where they're needed and where the where the things they make will actually help and if we can just get just keep building that fire i think we can attract more people to it and i think at some point you know maybe more and better will come we'll begin to see a new generation in office who come out of this kind of cauldron um because the current generation oh my god uh you know we joke here that most politicians can't tell the difference between a server and a waiter um i think that's still the case because if we thank you very much for joining us on the next billion seconds it's been my pleasure mark politics are how we've decided that we can keep all of our demons in check greed gluttony sloth envy lust pride and wrath Modern politics seems to be more about managing wrath as a political force, keeping everyone stirred up in order to keep them controlled. Social media has given everyone a voice, and it's given a new meaning to crowd control. 
Our conversation with Mika Sifri shows us how far we've come and some of what the future looks like for politics. We'll continue that conversation in the companion episode to this one in our interview with strategic thinker John Robb. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking more about the future of politics? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the future, and we will do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In our next episode, we'll bring you another in our new series about the future of automobiles, the next billion cars. Between autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, the whole experience of the car is going to change. What does that mean for us as car buyers, as car drivers, as car passengers? Will the automakers of today survive that change? That's next time on The Next Billion Cars. On the episode after that, we'll be back with John Robb on The Next Billion Seconds with the second half of this double episode that takes a look at the future of politics and the continuation of politics by other means. And then the episode after that, we'll drop in another episode of The Next Billion Cars. We've got great shows coming every week. You'll want to be here to listen. Big thanks to Mika Sifri for coming on our show and to Civic Hall in New York City for providing such a great backdrop for our conversation. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.